0: i uh-huh. uh-huh. And welcome to the protagonist podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Zuko from Avatar, The Last Airbender. And joining us for the discussion is first time guest, Francis Agnoli. Welcome, Francis.
1: Hello. Thank you for having me.
0: Very glad to have you on. And as a a more expert viewer of, uh, of Avatar than I am, producer Andrew will also be jumping in on this discussion. So welcome, Andrew. Yes, I am here. So we're going to be talking about the episode Zuko Alone from Avatar The Last Airbender. This is the seventh episode of the second season and it was written by Elizabeth Welch-Ihaz and directed by Lauren McMullen. The world of Avatar features groups who can control either water, earth, fire, or air. Only the Avatar can bend all four elements. This episode focuses on Zuko, a firebender, coming across an Earth Kingdom family whose son is in the war and also giving us flashbacks to Zuko's childhood. And Zuko is voiced by Dante Vasco in this episode. Um, Now, for the how we came to it, I feel like on the one hand, I know very little about Avatar because I've only seen a handful of episodes. Several years ago, we did an episode of the podcast where we talked about Aang, and now we're talking about this one, so I watched this episode. But on the other hand, I've also had, I'm going to guess, at least a dozen, maybe two dozen student papers about Avatar The Last Airbender uh, in, in my college classes. So I've read several people who, you know, they're writing about a text that they they very much love, and I, I feel more immersed in the world or more familiar with the world than someone who's only watched a handful of episodes because of that. Um, but Francis, what about you? What is your story with Avatar The Last Airbender?
1: Well, I like to describe myself as a day two fan. I watched the rerun of the first episode the Saturday morning after it had aired, and from there just watched pretty much it all live as it came out. When I uh, started doing my PhD, um, and my supervisor sat me down and said, you are to have way too broad of a topic, you need to narrow it down to a single text, I chose the one that I felt the most familiar with. And that was Avatar The Last Airbender and its sequel series, The Legend of Korra.
0: So you're an expert expert on this, having uh, worked on your Ph.D. dissertation, but also had a couple of publications come out about Avatar, correct? Uh, correct. Um, let's see, what are the titles of those? Just uh, I've got one. It's You had a chapter in a- the Avatar television franchise, uh, Storytelling, Identity, Trauma, and Fandom. And I think you, you told me that uh, your chapter in that was specifically about this episode that we're going to be discussing today.
1: Yeah, the I was also the editor of this mm-hmm. collection, and what I had hoped for uh, this volume was that it would work as a very good intro to media studies textbook, with each chapter kind of taking a different theory or concept and introducing them to a lot of, you know, undergraduate uh, media scholars. Mm-hmm. For my chapter, I wanted to talk about Genre theory and kind of reading this episode, Zuko alone, like what if we thought of it as a western
0: <laughs> which uh watching it uh yesterday, and i, I actually watched it again today, uh, a little more in the background as I was writing up some some notes on some other things, it's hard to avoid some of the western uh identity <laughs> for this particular episode,
1: <laughs> even so. when I was fifteen years old, having probably never seen an entire Western film all the way through. I like, knew that this was a Western, and I don't know how I knew that.
0: <laughs> we'll get back to it after we do the summary. Uh, but yeah. definitely, uh, I think this was a good text to talk about, uh, like, in uh, genre blending uh, in the postmodern sense.
1: Yeah, The other uh, text uh, that I had written is a single-authored book, which is based off of my research for my dissertation, Restructured, Reorganized, uh, called Race and the Animated Bodyscape where I use Avatar Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra as my core text that I am looking at, with a kind of basic question of how do these shows construct racial identities or racialized identities for these individual human characters. Because they're cartoons, not actors.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, these books both look really interesting, and I have uh, The Race in the Animated Bodyscape, and I look forward to to digging into that, hopefully as I um, also start watching more of Avatar with my kids uh, and catch up on what I know is a very beloved series. Uh, now, Andrew, what is your story with Avatar The Last Airbender?
2: I also watched it um, essentially as it was coming out. I think, I think I saw the first episode on the Friday night, so... You know, a, a few hours before Francis, uh, but <laughs> I was not more
0: experience with Avatar, the last of Us.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but I was not um I was not totally consistent watching each, each season as it came out. I would kind of catch back up halfway through the season because they would I mean, this was Nickelodeon's bread and butter for a while, and so they were rerunning everything pretty steadily. And so it was not hard to catch up on on almost every episode by the end of a season, even if you started Four or five weeks in, uh, you had plenty of opportunity to like. Okay, yep, I've seen everything. Okay, I'm I'm good. Uh, I think for the final season, I was really steady with it. Um, and at that point, it was probably thanks to the the DVR. Uh, I was able to set and record everything, and then and then watch it as it came out. And especially the finale was a was a major event. Uh, and then it's it's you know been in my consciousness as as I've done everything. I I wrote uh, a lowly undergraduate college paper about this episode, <laughs> um, in, in a class called literature and culture of the American West. And so that was all about, um, like cowboy mythology and Western, uh, narratives. And, and so I used this as, as an example of, oh, well, you can use Western tropes in, in different environments or different settings, and you can still tell a Western story. There's, there's stylistic things and, And all of that. And I thought it was especially interesting because this is uh, a show made in America, mimicking not only a lot of Asian cultural elements, but also to some degree, like Asian animation elements and then doing a Western like secondhand through that. And so it's it's West to East to West.
0: So, um, Andrew, you were drawn to this episode for an underground paper. Francis, you wrote a whole academic chapter on this. Is this one of the most beloved episodes of the
2: series? Uh, I'd say it's very iconic, for sure, as like the Western episode.:
1: Yeah, I would say this is when I'm trying to think of which episodes have the best reputation within the fandom, Zuko alone would definitely be a contender.
0: So it would be in the another, conversation there for sure.
1: Another one personally, maybe this is more personal for me, but the episode, I believe you already did a podcast on uh, bitter work, which mm-hmm. is the episode that aired right after Zuko alone.
2: They were really in a good groove then in season two. And this is, this is also a period, especially in season two is where it builds much more of a serialized narrative. And so they have standalone episodes, but a lot of episodes are are doing season work. And this is an episode that's doing kind of a lot of character work instead of season narrative.
0: Okay. Um. So it's kind of interesting. One thing you noted, uh, Andrew and Francis, as like watching it right when it came out or its uh, immediate rerun. So this TV series ran for three seasons and 61 episodes from uh, two thousand five to two thousand eight, and that's um a very different viewing experience than even you know 10, 15 years later, where um like Andrew you said by the end you were able to DVR, it, but it's still different than the on demand streaming where so much children's media and, and media in general is now consumed where it's just like pull up the episode you want. Uh, to a degree, there was a uh, a level of like you gotta catch it when it's on. And it sounds like Nickelodeon re-aired it a lot because they knew that aspect of uh of the viewing patterns of the, of their audiences at that point.
2: Well, and this was pre-streaming enough. I bought the DVDs and I still have them.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, the individual volumes and then the box mm-hmm. sets for each season. Yeah. Same.
2: <laughs> uh, all right. Well, a little
0: bit more trivia about the series. It was created by Michael Dante DiMartino and Brian Konietzko. Konietzko. Uh, well, how is it? Sorry? Konietzko. Konietzko. Okay. Konietzko. And the franchise started as that animated series, but it has spread out. There was a sequel series, The Legend of Korra, that's already been mentioned. Also an ongoing comic book series, prequel novels. There's an upcoming animated film that I think is going to be for a theatrical release. And there was a poorly received live action film. And now Netflix is producing a live action adaptation as a series um, as well. So, um, you know, this is a, a franchise that started you know 2005 to 2008 not that long ago but it's spread into a lot of media since then is there anything that i missed in those
1: oh there's also a theme park ride i believe at some point
0: oh i'm gonna uh, just go out on a limb and guess there's some rpg guides that you could play in this world there i know for sure there is
1: <laughs> a recently published one if i remember correctly
0: yeah okay uh
1: and also a uh a burger king uh children's meal toy tie-in Hmm. they weren't called Happy Meals, whatever the Burger King's version of Happy Meals were.
0: I think it's just a kid's meal. I'm not 100% sure. I um, may also
1: have all of those. Okay. <laughs> uh,
0: the series won several awards, including an Emmy, a Peabody, and several Annie Awards. And um, I know, like I said, just from conversations with my my students uh, in college, that it remains a beloved series. Um, you know, it's, it's um, one of those that uh, audiences keep or new audiences discover pretty regularly, it seems. All right. Well, before we move on to the full summary of this episode, we want to thank you listeners for downloading this episode. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick Cast, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of this podcast. And we also give monthly updates on our fantasy box office game. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. Now on to the summary for Zuko alone. Um, does c- could one of you give us a quick update of where the story is at as we take this episode, which works as a standalone. Like I I don't know the full narrative of Zuko's interactions with uh Aang and the you know the other main characters at all. I, I was able to just jump in on this episode and watch it and enjoy it, and it absolutely works standalone. But what is the larger mythology of of you know the narrative at this point?
1: Well, so this is about halfway or almost halfway through the second season of the show. For the majority of the show, we are following Aang and his friend group as they travel around the world, uh, rescuing the village of the weak, defeating bad guys, and ultimately training up in order to fight and defeat the Fire Lord. Throughout the first season, they are pursued by the Fire Lord's exiled son, Prince Zuko, who believes that if he captures the Avatar, if he captures Aang, he will be able to return home with honor.
0: And also have his father's love and affection, I believe, right? Yes. Cause, cause that always works if you have well, in... <laughs> honor as a stand-in
2: yeah, for as much love and affection as the villain of the series is capable of. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. In the uh, second season Uh, Zuko and Aang's storylines are very much separate, like in the first season, they'll cross over every few episodes, he's the villain that they'll fight in order to save the city or town, but in the beginning of the second season, the two storylines diverge, Aang continues going around the Earth Kingdom, learning Earthbending, and Zuko and his mentor, his uncle, Iroh, are... Well, they become fugitives from the Fire Nation, and are now being pursued actively by his sister, the much more favored heir to the throne, Princess Zula. At the beginning of Zuko Alone, Zuko and his uncle Iroh have separated, and, well, the the title says Zuko is wandering the Earth Kingdom alone.
0: All right. Well, this is where we're at, listeners. So here we go. Zuko, exiled prince of the Fire Nation, is wandering alone and hungry. He's riding an ostrich horse. Is that what that thing is called? It's an ostrich, but also a horse. (laughs) Uh, So he's riding an ostrich horse that is also struggling with exhaustion. Zuko comes across a man who is cooking, and he briefly considers attacking him for the meal, but then he sees a pregnant woman with the man, and Zuko just moves on. He reaches a village and buys some feed with the the few coins he has. While the vendor goes to get the feed, some kids throw an egg at some soldiers who are nearby. The soldiers think Zuko did it. Zuko covers for the kids, and the soldiers take his feed as a contribution, is what they call it. The vendor says the soldiers are supposed to protect them from the Fire Nation, but they're really just bullies. One of the kids named Lee takes Zuko to his farm to feed his ostrich horse as thanks for covering for him. Lee's family offers him a meal, uh, Zuko a meal, uh, if he will help out on the farm. Um, Zuko learns that Lee's older brother is in the real army, protecting the Earth Kingdom from the Fire Nation and the family loathes the soldiers who are supposedly protecting this village, but are really just kind of taking advantage of the people who are still here. We get a flashback to young Zuko bickering with his sister, talking about lines of succession in the Fire Kingdom. Lee sneaks in while Zuko is sleeping, so back in in the present. Lee sneaks in and steals Zuko's swords to go practice with them. Zuko wakes up and gives Lee a lesson on how to fight with the blades, and I'm not speaking like euphemistically about beating him up. He actually gives him a lesson, like teaches him how to use the swords properly. In the morning, Zuko is getting ready to leave when the soldiers arrive. They say that the battalion Lee's brother is in has been captured. Zuko has a flashback to when he was a kid and a messenger brought news that his cousin had been killed. Lee's father says, uh, so back in the present, Lee's father now says that he's going to go to the war front to look for his son. Lee asks Zuko if Zuko will stay to protect them, but Zuko gives Lee a dagger and rides off. We see a flashback of Zuko's father jockeying for power in the Fire Nation, and the leader of the Fire Nation being angry that he would do this in the face of tragedy. Zuko's sister uh, teases Zuko that he is going to be killed to teach their father the pain of losing a son. In the present, Zuko sees Lee's mother coming down the road. She explains that the soldiers returned demanding food, and the child Lee pulled the knife that Zuko had given him on the soldiers. They then took Lee. Zuko agrees to help and goes to find the soldiers. He rides into town. This is like a full western motif at this point. He rides uh into into the small town with the the sun casting long shadows as his horse ostrich you know, uh steps through the street uh and he finds Lee tied up near the soldiers. He demands that the soldiers release the kid they attack Zuko easily defeats them. Then the soldier's leader attacks using earth bending or at least I assume this is earth bending was that accurate? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, And then Zuko is knocked back by a boulder and we get one more flashback. Zuko's mom is waking him, telling him that she is there to protect him and that no matter how much things change, Zuko must never forget who he is. In the present, Zuko stands up and he uses firebending to defeat the leader of the soldiers after he has avoided saying his name this whole episode. Uh, And now he announces, my name is Zuko, son of Ursa and Fire Lord Ozai, prince of the Fire Nation and heir to the throne. Zuko then retrieves the dagger that he had given to Lee from a fallen soldier. And he goes and offers it to Lee, but Lee's mom tells Zuko not to come any closer and Lee refuses the dagger yelling out. I hate you to Zuko Uh, in a flashback. Zuko wakes up and looks around for his mother, but nobody knows where she is. Their grandfather died in the night and Zuko's father has been made king of the fire kingdom back in the present uh, earth kingdom. Villagers glare at Zuko as he rides off into the sunset. The end. Yeah, pretty much covers it. Yeah, and uh like I said, this is an episode I found I could know basically nothing about the world of Avatar the Last Airbender and this still works. Um uh, you know, has this self-contained story that does um, embody many of the tropes that we associate with the western uh mythology of the the kind of the frontier and uh and, and that kind of character type and um it, it, but it still has all this like fantasy flavor of the earth bending and the fire bending and these flashbacks that tell you about like this this uh political intrigue and and larger things that are are kind of separate from the western uh story. Uh so it's an interesting blend of those elements. Um Francis, what do you think makes this episode work so well in your mind? Why why this episode of Avatar the Last Airbender to uh both write about and then come on this podcast to talk about?
1: For this episode in particular, so part of me is trying to go back to what it was like to watch this in the spring of 2006 for the first time. And I think one of the big appeals was really getting to know Zuko better. Like, Zuko does have this character arc over the course of the three seasons of the show. But before he has too many real makes real changes or matures, we get this kind of onion development. We pull back layers after layers and learn more about this angry teenager who's yelling about honor. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, there's there's more going on. Uh, depending on how you watch this episode, we might have also seen the previously on showing an earlier flashback of how zuko got his scar
0: uh, uh, I it, that played when i was when i was watching this because i was i was expecting to find out in this episode how he had his scar
1: yeah that was they they reference it uh mm-hmm. apparently it was a big secret to a bunch of uh fire nation soldiers in the first season but now that crotchy old guy in the uh in a small mining town in the boonies of the Earth Kingdom knows exactly what happened to him.
0: Uh, Rumors spread like wildfire.
1: Yeah. Or you could say, oh yeah, of course the Fire Nation doesn't let that information spread. <laughs> um yeah, I think that the big appeal for this episode was the character of Zuko and getting to see him in this very different environment in a very different scenario than we're used to seeing him throughout the first season he's very much an antic and opposing and antagonistic force to the heroes mm-hmm. uh, and then over the course of the second season we have these b stories or z stories as they were called after zuko uh, <laughs> about him and iroh <laughs> And them find their way through the Earth Kingdom. But this was an entire 20 plus minutes spent just getting to know this character who was first introduced to us as a villain.
0: Yeah, and um, like if you just came and watched this episode, kind of like I did, you, I don't think it would be surprising to think this was like, your mysterious protagonist, like a Wolverine, you know, in a, in a Wolverine comic, or you know, any number of mm-hmm. these, you know, old Western characters in either novels or movies, you know, the ones who wa- ride in and they have a mysterious past that people aren't clear about. You th- this works as like him as as protagonist. I know in the first season he was strictly antagonist, so it was interesting to come and and watch this episode uh, and see him in this, uh, you know, in, in the light that aligns him with a lot of those kinds of outsider characters. It's a character type we've mentioned several times in this podcast. And that um, I think a lot of us are familiar with, even if we don't necessarily have the label of, you know, the person who has um, elements of savagery, but they use it to protect civilization, right? You know, they use their violence to protect a society that they actually don't belong to because they have too much of that outsiderness within them as, as a person. Mm-hmm. And I think this episode functions as that kind of a tale. It's just interesting that it's, using the villain uh as, as or you know who the antagonist as as the the main character for this episode.
2: And and through the second season Zuko is I mean he he is essentially a um secondary protagonist. He he and Iroh are in a parallel story where they are the main characters and they are generally not dealing with with Ang at all. Um like Francis mentioned, you know, they're telling a separate story, and so the fact that we keep cutting to them is now casting them into okay, well, these are main characters in this show, mm-hmm. whether they're antagonists or not is questionable, but they're main characters right and so their journey is as as relevant as anything else
1: and I will also add that even in the first season, the showrunners, the writers seem to recognize that Zuko while he was a Antagonist was not a true villain. Like, they always made sure, like, in the third episode, they introduced the character of Admiral, uh, at time, he's not an admiral yet, but Admiral Zhao, who is a very career centered, uh, military figure who's like, oh, this guy is so much worse than Zuko. <laughs> Mm -hmm. This is someone that Zuko can be pitted against, and audiences will root for Zuko.
2: Yeah. So. And then
1: it. Sorry.
2: Well, yeah, like what you're saying immediately within the show, you're like, okay, like it's cool to be on Zuko's side. It's cool to be rooting for Zuko. You want him to turn, you want him to grow, you want him to develop. I think Zuko was a lot of people's favorite character.
1: Definitely. Also, he was the uh, oldest of the child characters on the show. Uh, Trying to remember the exact canonical ages they gave everyone, I want to say he was 15 or 16.
2: I think he was 16, and then everyone else would have been under 15.
1: Yeah, I think Aang was twelve. I remember that that's yeah. the one I'm 100% sure on. The other is I Yeah, am and then Sokka and Katara
2: is 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 debatable and then Toph is also 12. Also 12.
1: Yeah. So we have Zhao in the first season and the second season they have Princess Azula who is again serves the same function of, as Zhao of here is someone who's even worse on the Fire Nation side so we can root. Yeah. For Zuko, whenever they, whenever he clashes,
0: I don't think I've ever seen an episode with her yet. Uh, I'm trying to remember if she was. in Well, the one we that I did.
1: Remember. We uh, just saw Zuko alone, where we well, saw a little kid for
0: sure. Yeah, you, you see, you see, yes. young Zuko. Well, no, that's what I meant. Is, like this episode was my introduction to her, and boy, do you not like her in this episode? <laughs> like you, <laughs> they're 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 really not being subtle and about who, where your sympathies should lie in, the, in this sibling rivalry. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: she just gets more refined as she gets older. That's
2: about it. Yeah. And it's, I think it's really interesting that I, I don't know that they did it too much throughout the first season, but definitely in the second season, they make Zuko so much of an underdog. There's a little bit of it in the first season, but like you can see from this episode, like, yeah, you need to root for Zuko because he's the underdog, even though he's an antagonist or a villain, you root for an underdog whenever possible. And so they give, I don't know, an overdog to Zuko whenever possible. So that you you're on his side.
1: Yes, that is definitely the technical uh term that we use.
2: <laughs> for for Zhao and Azula, the, overdog. the overdogs.
1: Also known as the updog. <laughs> What's updog? <laughs> I will leave myself out now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um for so from what you're all saying, and again, I'm I know you all are you two are, are far more authority, authorities on this text than I am. Uh Pretty early on. The audience is meant to have sympathy for Zuko, even as he's an antagonist to what Aang is trying to accomplish. Um And then in season two, he's kind of on his own journey In in season two are we rooting for him like a, 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 on that journey? Is that something that the audience kind of wants to see him succeed at?
1: We just want him to make the right choices and be better.
2: <laughs> we just want what's best for him.
1: He, he, he's so close. <laughs> he's so close. He just needs to just just, just listen to your uncle. You <laughs> okay, just listen to your uncle.
0: I do remember loving uncle Iroh in the episodes that I've seen. Um, he's a, he seems like a, a sage old man there.
2: This episode really is weird because it's just Zuko. There's none of the other main characters in in the episode at all. Never mind the title character. Mm -hmm. Like Zuko really is alone. And it's like, oh, this is really unusual to have in it. Like in any media, like, yeah, let's just have this one character and the whole episodes about them. I don't think any other character gets a complete solo episode.
0: Um, so, so for where this episode falls does it represent uh, do you think like a narrative turning point for either Zuko or for the audience's relationship with Zuko or is it more of just a deepening of our sympathies for Zuko because we learn more of his backstory and we see him trying to do good in this episode and being rejected by the very people that he's trying to help like like uh, I, I guess uh, you know how much of a switch is this or is it just more of uh, like, like a, a more focused version of what we've already kind of had going
1: I think because now I have to see how well I remember the preceding several episodes. <laughs> Zuko is primarily in survival mode.
0: Mm-hmm. He
1: is starting to recognize that these Earth Kingdom citizens, these people who he has very much, in his mind at least, has dehumanized and subhumanized, are people who suffer and who, well, are human. In the second episode of the season, he ends up uh, having to uh, bring his uncle to get medical attention to a small Earth Kingdom village. And he meets a young woman there who shows that she also has these burn marks. And she tries to see this as a bond way for the two of them to bond. And there's just this moment of him kind of recognizing a shared humanity. And then she goes. Then he goes and steals her ostrich horse. Uh, another point, he uh, dons a mask and starts uh, engaging in highway robbery in order to make sure he and his uncle have food and supplies. And yeah, I think that a big part for Zuko's journey in the first half of Season 2 is going from survival mode to trying to do... For, to recognizing that these Earth Kingdom citizens are human, and that mm-hmm. he can see them as human, that there's more than just him to care for.
0: And I think one thing that we also get in this episode is uh, the sense that there's there's so much hatred from the Earth Kingdom citizens towards him and his kingdom uh, that I, I, at least it, it he doesn't seem... At the in the end of this episode, angry about that. Right. He kind of see there's like some acceptance of or it felt like some sort of uh, like we kind of brought this on ourselves. And and you in the in our notes for this episode, you made a note about like this kind of feels a lot like Shane. And there are so many comparisons to to Shane, the novel. Yeah, Shane is is like the, the main text,
2: I feel like for
0: this one. I, and I feel like we need to do a whole episode about Shane because I, I, we reference Shane at least once a year on, the, on this podcast. Uh, but the, may, the main difference for me is at the end of Shane, it's like in the film, it's the version of, you know, the kid yelling, "Come back, Shane! Come back!" You know, that's they want Shane there; they're desperate for Shane to be there. But Shane knows he doesn't belong, and this they they don't want him there. Uh, <laughs> there is no comeback mm-hmm. Zuko uh, happening, and it gives a very different sense of tragedy in both films like i think there's a sense of tragedy uh at the end about this this lack of belonging but it's a very different feeling because of uh you know the the animosity that's coming versus the uh you know the the wish that's that shane could stay on
2: Mm -hmm. well and i think with with zuko you know at the end of this episode that kind of acceptance and and not not resentment of the earth King, he's like he he totally understands like yeah i get you guys not trusting me. It makes a ton of sense. And he, you know, he has a, an acceptance of that. And it, I think that might be one of the key changes that he has in this episode is he starts to have a, a, maybe a resolution of, okay, I either have to keep it secret or I have to change everything. You know, I have to do so much good that it, that it changes people's minds. Uh, and, and I also think this episode and, and you, you mentioned, um, you know, previous episodes where he's seeing kind of a kinship with with people in the Earth Kingdom, uh, in in burn scars, and and like he is a victim of the same thing that the Earth Kingdom is a victim of. Right? He is the 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 victim within his family. He has been burned by his family in the same way that his family's empire is attacking, and so he has he has a relationship to the earth kingdom as oppressed by, by the fire nation and rejected by the fire nation, right. It, being in exile, but, but they don't feel that for him. And I think that's part of the the tragedy that you're talking about, Joe is yeah, he feels I, a kinship and they do not.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely uh, can see that. And particularly, I, I think for us as an audience, we sense we see some of those ideas. Um, being shown in the flashbacks, but also that's, I think, somewhat being paralleled with the idea of the, the soldiers that, uh you know, that it's not just uh the Fire Nation has hurt Zuko and the Fire Nation has hurt the Earth Nation. It's that, uh you know, these these people here are victims of bullying, you know, from within their own structure, the same as Zuko. So I think there's another parallel that's present uh just from these villagers versus the soldiers that are supposed to be protecting them but have hurt them and Zuko and, you know, the, the family dynamic that we get flashbacks about.
1: Yeah, for the soldiers, if you don't mind talking a bit more about them for a second, an interesting narrative uh, cycle, I guess, uh, for the three seasons of Avatar. In the first season, it very much sets up this dichotomy of Fire Nation bad, Earth Kingdom, Water Tribe, uh, Air Nomad, good. In season two, as we start journeying through the Earth Kingdom, both Zuko and Iroh, as well as Aang and his friends, we kind of see that the Earth Kingdom isn't actually that good.
2: Yeah, there's definitely, like it's a, definitely corruption and abuse of power.
1: Like, even in the silly episodes like Avatar Day, where... <laughs> One of the uh <laughs> I forgot about that episode. Yes. That,
0: that yeah. strikes a chord for Andrew that I, I I'm missing. <laughs> the
1: one where the Avatar's almost boiled in oil. <laughs>
2: what? Uh there's a there's a there's a city that hates the Avatar huh? and are willing to lynch him. Okay. Uh not quite, but essentially. Ah, children's entertainment here.
1: Yeah. And he and he has a really good heart to heart with uh all the <laughs> fellow prisoners about his love life. Mm -hmm. And it's beautiful. Uh, But yeah, even in this kind of a silly throwaway episode like that, we uh, see that, yeah, the Earth Kingdom's not that good. And then in season three, when they're traveling through the Fire Nation, we kind of go, oh, so this is what it's like to live under an imperialist regime. It's a lot of uh, brainwashing. And, you know, these other people who are lower classes are also victims of the uh of the fire nation (laughs) the tyrant (laughs) yeah it's like here's a uh, small fishing village that the water is so polluted that they are slowly dying off of sickness because the fire nation said we need a bunch of factories along this river along this uh, lake in order to keep our war machine humming
2: and and even in the first season when they get to the Northern water tribe, like there's jerks there, right? There are people who are not cool.
1: Say what you will about the fire nation. At least they're pretty egalitarian when it comes to the home guard, (laughs) not for the soldiers Uh, they send out, but like local security, uh, they tend to be pretty egalitarian.
2: mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess also for the, the air nomads, there's depictions of their leadership hierarchy where the people at the top are kind of harsh and Aang is not in line with them. And so we kind of have, you know, within every every group, they do have a depiction of positive and negative. They, they never do a, a, an absolute.
1: And even if we talk about our main characters, there's moments of darkness, even for lovable Aang one of the upcoming episodes, a few after Zuko Alone. Like, Zuko Alone's the Shane episode, and then we have the Desert, which is the Searchers episode. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Just
0: moving on to our Western themes here. Mm-hmm.
1: It's a t- look, they admitted on the commentary tracks they were watching a lot of Westerns at this time.
2: Yeah, but we we, we get a, a Train Chase episode, um, which is the, the Butch cast and Sundance kind of
1: element oh, to yeah. it. And you have... I guess actually I was wrong. Bitter, there's an episode between Zuko Alone and Bitter Work with uh, The Chase, where they have the final showdown in a uh, ghost town, which reminds me, I'm trying to remember, what was the name of that one of Gary Cooper's last westerns? Oh, wow. Uh, it was the one that took place that uh, at that a... Go- that, uh, oh, man, I'm blanking on its name. It I- was... They I have the there. image in
0: my head that you're talking about.
1: He teamed up with his old uh, gang because they had robbed the train he was on, and now they are going to go rob a uh, a bank in a town. But it turns out to ghost town; no one's there anymore. Um,
0: someone out there is very like <laughs> yelling at their earbuds.
1: <laughs> yes, or like me is pulling up Wikipedia and yeah. finding out for themselves.
2: But yeah, so there's there's, there's like f- West,
1: man of the West. There we go.
2: There's four or five western episodes in the middle of the season.
1: Yeah. All while they're in the uh this around and in the uh, Si Wong deserts.
0: I mean it's I, a genre that fits very well for wandering uh <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and uh coming across uh you know a, a, a new village for for an episode and having a little adventure there. The, I mean, American media knew the Western was ideal for that for a very long time. We've slipped away from it. So it makes sense that if that's what they're going to be doing in this in this season, that they're going to borrow a lot of Western tropes.
2: Well, and I, I love how effectively they they put the Western tropes into this episode in particular, I think even more than than the other episodes. I think I mean, I, I'm sure it's only in this season, but it might only be in this episode that Zuko wears his swords at his hip. And it's so they can do holster shots mm-hmm. <laughs> because generally he has it over his shoulder.
1: Especially when, he, uh, like when he's in the blue spirit outfits over his shoulder and when he's in the Indiana Jones style episode from season <laughs> three, he has it over his shoulder.
2: Yeah. It, it's almost always over oh, his there's shoulder. Also a
1: Footloose episode. So you know. oh, that's
2: true. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> I'm going to promise to watch more of this show. That's, um, that's happening now from this discussion. But, <laughs> but they they have it at his hip, and I think it's almost exclusively so that they can do the, like the the, you know the the standoff in this Ooh. episode, and so they can show it as he's riding his horse, uh, his horse ostrich. Um, you know he reaches down to to his hip so that he's in the western silhouette, and this is also one of the only times that Zuko wears a hat.
1: He. Does have it he loses it when he gets into bossing, say. So he has this for a few episodes. But yeah, the hat is definitely a much more iconic piece of his costume in this episode.
0: Yeah. Well, in riding in on the the ostrich horse, like at the edge of town, riding through the street, like it it felt like the cinematography was being borrowed from classic Western films. Mm-hmm. Which, like I said, I mean it's uh, it, well, you mentioned Andrew, like this goes, you know, uh, west to east to west. Um, I mean that's a lot of Kurosawa films and, yeah. and other samurai films. It's you know it we, we see similar patterns in uh global popular culture in the 20s. Do they do
2: a Magnificent Seven episode?
0: They do not.
1: Not, in... no.
2: Okay. I was trying to remember if maybe or wait, 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 wait. wait. They do with the inventor and the, the people in the air temple. They are, I I think that's close enough to a magnificent seven where they say, okay, like figure out a way to defend yourselves and uses what you have on hand.
1: Well, I'll buy that.
2: It's they're not hired for it, but, but it's, it's, you know, they don't, just outright protect them. They, they teach them to protect themselves. So I, I'll call that a, a seven samurai.
0: Um, why do you think this character type or, or I I mean, we're identifying several Western tropes and we, we say in this episode, Zuko himself definitely feels like that outsider hero, that classic, uh, type. What is so resonant that it feels like we can find versions in almost every genre? You know, there's medical versions and lawyer versions and romantic comedy versions and, you know, of of this kind of character. And in this, we get, you know, the children's animation uh, version of of that. Why do you think that character type is something that is so pervasive in, in American popular culture?
1: I think part of it is this fantasy of being able to enter into those liminal spaces. Mm -hmm. So much of the Western hero, and especially during classical Westerns like you get in the 1950s Westerns like Shane, 1910s Westerns like Hell's Hinges, there is this fantasy of the figure who can go between civilization and the wilderness, Mm -hmm. who can enter into those dark places and come out, who can do the things that no one else can, because he, usually he... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is alone capable of that Who are alone capable of violence.
0: I will say um, sometimes when, uh, depending on what class of teaching, we talk, you know, in sub-depth about this kind of character type, uh, which does go back, you know, to dime novels and even a little bit earlier. Um, but as an example, I show them the introduction of uh, Sheriff Hopper in Stranger Things. Uh, it, and it is just a masterclass in establishing a hero that is both part of, uh, the authority structure and civilization and also part wild, <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, both civilized and, and savage at the, at the same time. And, uh, it is a very, is that, what was that? Is, is
2: that introduction what he's like smoking in his cabin and getting dressed as a cop?
0: yeah he, he's waking up drunk on the couch and he goes and takes a shower he's drinking and smoking in the shower uh, he's, he, he's putting on his, his uniform but it's like unkept as he steps out onto a deck and looks out at nothing like like just trees it's like a shot of him in trees uh, and behind <laughs> him is his house and the civilization it's like okay I see what we're doing here <laughs> this this character that's right on the edge in, in that liminal space mm-hmm. that you're, you're identifying Francis of um, you know existing as
2: both and neither simultaneously
1: and because of that he can save the world
2: Yes. <laughs> right. You could protect civilization from the dangers without civilization because you come from without civilization. Therefore, you can never remain. You have to ride off into the sunset. Um,
1: so, like, that's and, why I can imagine the character type being so popular during the Cold War, the 1950s, and kind of seen the equivalent in superhero films in the 2000s. Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, and, and like, you get it with like John Wick. John Wick is. Part of, you know, crime and murder, but he wants to be peaceful, but he can't (laughs) because he's part of crime and murder.
0: Yeah, we, we I think, like I said, you can you can plug this kind of character into so many genres. And once you like are looking for it, you're like, okay, I see you, Doctor House. Uh I see you every <laughs> yeah. cop in every Murder of the Week show that is yeah, has the captain that's trying to keep you in line. <laughs> um this this is just a pretty constant uh source of entertainment and it's emulated, I think, because it is something that's so resonant. Uh, you know, and and so it it definitely works for this standalone episode of what is ostensibly, a, you know, a piece of children's animation, uh, you know, made for the Nickelodeon network and marketed there? It's found a broader audience and definitely has been embraced by by both fans who grew up with it and now are adults. Uh, but also, you know, I, I think plenty of adults discovered it when it was airing on Nickelodeon and said, "There's something more going on here than what you maybe had been expecting uh, for for children's animation." And, and- I, I think that's why this the series. Even though it, you know it wrapped up in what was it 2008, I think it is when it wrapped up. Mm-hmm, uh, you know, so 15 years on, it still has people talking about it. it still has an earnest fan base uh, that engages with it, and we're still seeing new media explorations of it of the world that they created here.
2: Uh, to to keep talking about like the the character type, I think there's also an element where everyone can identify it because everyone feels like an outsider, or or at the bare minimum has felt like an outsider, mm-hmm. but really. If you're looking at a group, you you have to be looking into that group from the outside in some way. Uh, You know, nobody ever really feels like they are looking from the inside to the outside. Everyone feels isolated in in a group that they're in. And so seeing, oh, this outsider representation, I feel like that in, you know, this dynamic, which is not necessarily related to, you know, being on the frontier and then stepping into town. Mm But I feel like that because, oh, I feel like my family doesn't understand me fully, or I feel like my friend group is—you know—I I, I don't—I'm not a hundred percent within this group. I'm right. and,
0: and I'm only I within this group at school,
2: what? or. Yeah.
0: Like what aspect you're highlighting? Like, uh, like maybe if I was thinking about like this, this you know, seventy percent of our interactions, I feel like an insider, but there's that one weird time uh, that, that uh, you know, I really felt like something I said, you know, it didn't click or whatever, and and you know, we end up can we can? It's very easy to fixate on those moments and suddenly you know turn turn the interaction into something where you felt like you were not quite belonging. Uh, but if you, yeah. if, you know, and if we step back, maybe we could find so many other ways that yeah, everything was fine. But that social dynamic, I think, is is really easy to slip into, and that's why we find a lot of people associating or identifying with these kinds of characters. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. If you're, if you're looking at a group, you are an individual and that is a group. Therefore it's not the same thing. Nobody can be a group. Mm -hmm. Like I am the group (laughs) and I look at individuals. It's like, no, you're an individual and you look at the group. So you're going to feel individualistic and, and outside in some way, because you see a group and you are one.
0: Well, Francis, do you have any uh, final thoughts you want to share about Avatar The Last Airbender or Zuko?
1: Honestly, we can just probably go for a few more hours. but <laughs>
0: I know you have a lot of thoughts. You've written about them. Uh, we'll, we'll let yes. you plug that again at the very end here. <laughs>
1: um, for final thoughts, I will say about this particular episode, one thing every time we revisit it that I'm incredibly impressed by is how tight this screenplay, this teleplay, is. How we are introduce a whole new setting, multiple new characters. We have both the main storyline and the flashback, and yet we still have these moments of quiet, of contemplation. And yet I feel like I fully understand every character, even the smallest role, when they show up on screen in this episode.
0: Yeah. Regarding how tight this episode is. um, I was sitting down to, to write up the summary and I knew because the fandom was, was deep enough uh that I'd find an online summary that I could kind of like track and make sure I was getting all the key points. Uh, you know, just so I don't miss anything as I'm watching and, you know. And so I had it up on one screen and I had the episode playing on another screen. And I like skimmed through the first paragraph of the online summary just to see what are the key beats. And it's like, okay, he sees the the man and the pregnant woman. He sees another person. Then he goes into town and all those. And so then I start the episode and I'm typing up, you know, my version of that. And then I'm like, did I miss? did I miss the man of the moment? And cause that feels like a really important moment. And I, like, I would in like three seconds while I was typing that little scene happened, which does reveal so much about his character that he has this impulse to like reach for a sword when he thinks it's just mad with food and he's so hungry. And then he sees the pregnant woman and he, he decides to just write on. Uh, and, and yet it happened so quick at the beginning of the episode. I missed it in my summary at first. I'm like, I've read about it over on that one. Why didn't I see it on screen? And I had to rewind, you know, but it was only like, rewinding like 15 seconds. It was just, it happened so fast and yet when I watched it it felt so deliberate uh and so precise what they were trying to convey in that quick snippet uh and so um I I like you I was just like impressed with the economy of storytelling and the revelations about these characters the that you know every every little beat that they're going to give you is going to tell you something about Zuko uh in this episode
1: and just how well like the episode never steps outside of Zuko's perspective like we never see anything that he does not personally witness right and so it's like we are getting this window into other people's lives like we never meet lee's older brother we never see what happened we never in the entire series never finds out what never we never find out what happens to him we never return to this family mm-hmm. again and yet i feel like they are so much better defined than some characters you spend an entire season with
0: yeah, I—I I mean, that surprised me that, that you never come back. But uh, it also feels right for like a fully fleshed out world that a wandering character is going to have interactions that are meaningful that are going to have an impact. But then they're going to wander on and they're never going to find out, <laughs> you know, what what happened, uh, you know, a- after that interaction.
2: I just remembered something from this episode, and I like part of me's like, I can't believe this didn't come up in in almost an hour of talking about it when he teaches lee about the swords and he's talking about the two swords as a single weapon and like the the metaphor that it is about him as he's like i'm i'm inside the fire nation i'm outside the fire nation i am exiled but i'm also the crown prince right
1: and also a very direct reference to a similar scene in Shane, where Shane teaches little Joey how, <laughs> about to, shoot a, how to shoot a gun.
0: Uh-huh. I said we, we're going to have to circle back and do Shane on this podcast sometime, Andrew, because we, we yeah. talk about it an awful
2: lot lately. It's, it's, it's kind a of a, a core reference point for a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah.
1: Also, right. I think it's Gene Arthur's last movie, and that just makes me sad. Yeah. <sighs>
0: Well, Francis, thank you so much for coming on to talk about Avatar the Last Airbender. You are a first-time guest, and on this podcast, we like to celebrate great characters and great stories. So we always ask our guests, if you could hang out for a dinner party with some fictional characters, who would you want to hang out with for an evening and why?
1: So, in general, when if I want to have like an evening in, a dinner party, I try to keep things low stakes, like just kind of calm vibes. So That is definitely covering the list I put together. Um, I feel I have to include Uncle Iroh from Avatar (laughs) Last Airbender. Yes, Uh, Someone who will enjoy good food and good tea and good stories. Along similar lines, I would include Caduceus Clay from Critical Role, an actual play web series. Again, very calm vibes, lots of tea, good advice. Okay. Samwise Gamgee from Lord of the Rings.
0: This is a very chill party that you're setting up.
1: Yeah, you're learning a lot about me right now, everyone (laughs) out there listening. Paddington Bear. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, you're... There aren't really a lot of conflict, or interpersonal conflict happening here. And I actually struggled a bit to find the fifth one, so this will probably change in the future, but... Owen Sherma from The Haunting of Bly Manor,
0: the Netflix miniseries. I have not seen that one, so I'm at least familiar with all the other ones that you said. But I don't know that one. So what is that character like? Um, He
1: is the cook in the house. He is good food and bad puns. (laughs) And, you know, he's hopelessly in love with the uh, housekeeper and it's adorable.
0: I, so I sense there is going to be some good food at this between samwise and uh, Owen there and marmalade sandwiches from from Paddington. Everyone here eats well
1: <laughs> and has no shame for it. That is key to a good party.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Francis, again for joining. And they
1: will up. also clean up all the dishes. Help clean up the dishes afterwards. Oh,
0: that, that is really key. If you have someone doing that yes. at a party, that that's everyone
1: good on this list will do that.
0: Excellent. Well, that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Pertinus Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Francis, would you like to plug your books again?
1: All right. Got two books. One from Bloomsbury, which is an edited collection, um, the Avatar television franchise that came out earlier this year. And this month, at least the month we're recording, not sure when this will be posted, uh, we have Race and the Animated Bodyscape, a single authored book about how, like, the production processes behind the creation of racialized identities for characters in animated shows, specifically using Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra
0: all right well thank you again francis for joining us those books sound very interesting and i do recommend that our listeners check them out uh listeners thank you for listening we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story so long thank you for having me
1: yes and i have spent way too much time thinking of an answer for that
2: that
0: is a a pretty standard reply like once guests say they see that question it's like all they end up thinking about until the recording